Dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing in 1 Kings chapter 4. For those who are visiting amongst us today, we like to just tell you that we are, first of all, glad that you're with us, but also that as a church, week by week, in the mornings, on the Lord's Day, we've been going through the book of 1 Kings. Prior to that, we study the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and before that, Joshua, and so on. We are going through the Old Testament, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, seeking to study the Word of God and to apply it to our hearts. We feel that this is the best way to study the Word of God. It is consecutive, expository ministry. Of course, Lord's Day evenings here is a gospel sermon, and uh, midweek, Again, we're continuing to study the Word of God and to learn from the Scriptures and to found our life upon the truths therein. This morning we arrive in 1 Kings chapter 4. And I remind you what we saw last week, congregation, in chapter 3. We began to see the reign of King Solomon, that great reign of the great king. And he was a great king. Great because God made him great. God gave him wisdom. Remember how he asked for wisdom to lead the people. And Israel are now experiencing, as we have read in chapter 4, great prosperity and happiness under King Solomon. The kingdom is expanding. The nations round about fear. There's great prosperity and uh, Recall last week in chapter 3 what Solomon asked for. He asked for wisdom, didn't he, as we already said, to lead the people. And that was a good thing to ask for. But he could have asked for more, for personal holiness, for a consecrated heart to God. He could have asked to be a faithful spouse. We know the scriptures clearly teach one husband, one wife. Polygamy is never sanctioned in the word of God. Solomon didn't ask for that. And remember, there was a conditional promise that was made to Solomon. Solomon, if you walk in my statutes, in my commandments, you would have a long life. But Solomon lived a relatively short life. He only lived 60 years. He was king at the age of 20, and he reigned for 40 years. And thus he died at 60 years of age. The Jews believed it was somewhere around 58 years of age. Solomon didn't live a long life. Sadly, we saw last week, 1 Kings 11, verse 4, it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Yes, David was a sinner, but David did confess his sins, and David did forsake his sins. Of course, David wasn't a perfect man, but David was a man described as a man whose heart was after the Lord. Solomon, of course, we believe was a regenerate man, and the Spirit so worked in him, and he penned many of the Scriptures. The Spirit gave direction to Solomon. And uh, we have read here of the many Proverbs. We have the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the Proverbs. All of these 
inspired word of God. And he was a wise man. But really, for so much of his life, he did not have, as we're told, his heart was not perfect. 1 Kings 11 verse 4. When David sinned, he said, Lord, create in me a pure heart. We can ask for a pure heart. We can and should ask to live a consecrated life. Yes, what he asked for was good. But first of all, friends, we learned last week, while he was a good leader, in many ways he didn't lead by good example. If we are to lead, we've got to be very careful to lead by good example, don't we? We don't want to, as the Lord Jesus said, cause any of the little ones to stumble. Now, again, it was good to ask for wisdom to lead the people. But we need to make sure that the wisdom that we ask for in life tends to godliness of life. We don't want simply wisdom to be prosperous. We don't simply want wisdom uh, to be uh, glorified. We don't ask for wisdom that we be glorified, but that God be glorified in our lives. We don't want wisdom to glory in ourselves, do we? Remember what Paul said, whatsoever ye do, do to the glory of God. Now, no doubt we are told Solomon did love the Lord. But we can always love the Lord more, can't we? We're all imperfect. Well, we do believe that eventually the Lord humbled Solomon at the close of his life. I do believe that Ecclesiastes really was his swan song written at the end of his life. For instance, if you just turn to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, we read this. And this is Solomon. We know Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes 1.12. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He's reflecting back on his early days as king. And now he sees himself as an experienced man, his experienced life, even as a as a king. And he's now saying that he has a, a lot more to say. He was king in Jerusalem and gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold, all is vanity or emptiness and vexation of spirit. Come down to the verse 16. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. Now notice, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. There are two kinds of wisdom. Of course, there is an earthly wisdom, but wisdom without God really is vanity, isn't it? You can be wise in many things, but if the wisdom is not grounded in the fear of God, because the fear of God is the beginning of all true wisdom, isn't it? The fear of God. That's where we must begin. The wisdom that Solomon eventually learned was ultimately 
It's found at the close of the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. If we do not have the fear of God as the basis and the baseline disposition of our wisdom, it's not real wisdom, is it? Why are we learning? We're learning to live for the glory of God. Because really, you can learn a lot of things, but even knowledge puffeth up, doesn't it? Without living for God, it is a baseless and an empty life. So that's why when you come to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he said, in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth or laughter, and so on. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And we read in chapter 2 how he had made palaces and gardens and everything else. And all of that didn't bring him pleasure. You come down to chapter 2, verse 12. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Solomon saw all that he had worked for. What's going to happen? Even that which hath been hath already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, and so on. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that with one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, that this also is vanity, for well, there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever, seeing that that which now is in the days to come shall be forgotten, and how dieth the wise man as the fool. Now notice this. I, therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Who is the man after him? Rehoboam, a foolish son. And under Rehoboam, the kingdom would be split. Now again, at the close of the book of Ecclesiastes, what does he have to teach us? What are the final words of the preacher, the one who was king? Verse 12 and therefore, further, by these my son be admonished of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is man's all. The Westminster Catechism answer is, what is the chief end of man? It is to know God and to enjoy him forever. To know God is to fear God, and to live for him, and to glorify him. That's life, to know God, and to serve him in this life. Real wisdom that brings real peace of heart is to know God and to serve him, not just to attain wisdom for the sake of wisdom's sake. But wisdom without God is not wisdom. It's not wisdom at all. All true wisdom comes from God. And therefore, having set all of that background before us now, having considered in chapter 3, God giving him wisdom, and we come here 
Chapter 4 really is a purview of Solomon's reign as king. And it sets before us, um, in a more extensive way, his kingdom, and how vast it was, and how great it was. And there are some lessons to learn here for us this morning. Chapter 4 here may appear at first glance to be very fruitless in terms of our instruction. But actually, there is much instruction here in this chapter, as always in the Word of God, because it shows us, as we look at Solomon, the need of one that is greater than Solomon. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? And of course, Solomon is a type, is he not? We see him as a type of Christ. As David was a type, David was the conquering king. But David didn't conquer exactly all of his enemies. He was still left with Joab and a few of the other men who caused him difficulty in government. And Abishai and and, uh, Shimei, should I say. David didn't defeat, in the true sense, some of those men that were close to him who weren't really his allies. But David was a type of Christ in this sense. He was the conquering king. Solomon is the prosperous and the peaceful king. There was a reign of peace under Solomon. And Christ is the prince of peace. And we know real peace if we know his wisdom and we know his spirit in our hearts. Solomon was endued with the spirit of Christ. But Solomon points us he is a foreshadowing of Christ. And we can also compare and contrast Solomon's wisdom and over against Christ's wisdom and Christ's kingdom. Because the Lord Jesus said, And lo, a greater than Solomon is here. Remember what he said concerning the queen of the south. He said, she came to see all the wisdom of Solomon. And remember what she said, the half was not told me. But when she saw Solomon and all of his greatness, we read that there was no spirit left in her. And then he said, but lo, a greater than Solomon is here. So we want to see Christ. Christ who far surpasses Solomon. So as we look at this chapter, we consider the greatness of Solomon, but let us not forget the greater, the king who was to come and who did come, my friends, who is coming again and who has a kingdom. So a few things that we glean. Now, when we speak of Christ's kingdom, we speak of the king of kings. And here's Solomon, just a faint foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. Now, somebody might say, well, pastor, you said under Solomon's reign, there was peace. Well, there was. But what about us Christians? Do we, do we not have peace? Well, Paul tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And Paul tells us elsewhere, let the peace of God be upon you. And he also tells us that indeed, in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. But somebody says, well, as a Christian, sometimes I don't have perfect peace. Well, why is that? We don't have perfect peace in our lives. Well, we won't have complete perfect peace in this life because of our sin, will we? 
But we can have the peace of Christ as his spirit rules and reigns in our hearts. We are very often the ones that cause unrest in our own hearts because of our own sin and sin around us. We're surrounded by sin, but one day we will be with Christ in a perfect kingdom that there is always and forever will be peace. Well, let us just make a few notes here about Solomon's rule and administration and its effects. Well, you see the rule, the administration, and the effects in verses 1 to the verse 28. In the first six verses here of 1 Kings chapter 4, we are given his princes or his officers in government. But I want you to notice, first of all, as we come to verse 1, there's something unique about Solomon compared to all the kings of Israel, and was not so in David. Notice in verse 1, so King Solomon was king over all Israel. Now, for the whole of Solomon's reign, that was. But that could not be said of any other king in Israel. Do you realize that? Not even David. David, for seven years, was king over Judah. That was his first reign. But So there was a time when David was not king over all Israel. And then after Solomon will come Rehoboam. And so even Rehoboam will not be king over Israel over all his reign. Something that is utterly unique about Solomon and then all the other kings in the Old Testament is that he was king over Israel for all of his life. And that is true of Christ. Christ has always been king of his people. It could never be said of another king. All of Solomon's successes reigned only in part over the kingdom. Rehoboam, under Rehoboam, the kingdom was split. Israel in the north never had a king again after 722 BC, much later. They split Jeroboam was the first king in the north. Rehoboam lost the ten tribes and ruled over Benjamin and Judah. But the kingdom never had a king again as reigning over all of Israel. David only part, we're told, 33 years he reigned over Israel, seven years over Judah. So what is unique about Solomon and we compare it to Christ, is that all of, his, all of his reign, he reigned over Israel. He's typical in that sense. He's very unique in that sense. So, there are things that point to this in the Scriptures. When would Israel have one king again? After Solomon. When? Christ. Isaiah 32. Verse 1, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. One day Jesus Christ would come into the world, but he's always been king. Do you remember even back in Samuel, where it was Samuel who came? Remember, well, the Lord came to Samuel and said, They've not rejected you, but they've rejected me. God was king of his people even then. 
The shout of a king is amongst them, we're told, in the book of Numbers. God was king and ruler. But eventually, that one would become man. And that one would have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Do you remember the superscription that was over our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross? This is the king of the Jews. Yes, he is one king. Ezekiel chapter 34 and the verse 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them. Think of it. After Rehoboam, not a single king will reign over Israel again. Solomon is the only king that throughout his entire reign reigned over Israel. That could not be said of David, for David reigned seven years over Judah and 33 years over Israel. Now, there's something else. There's a continuation from David to Solomon. We notice as we look at the list of men here, that a number of the names are still here. So he obviously had the same spirit as David, didn't he? And he dealt with Joab, and he dealt with Shimei accordingly. So he had Christ's spirit in him. Remember what David said when he said, Lord, remove not thy spirit from me. All Old Testament saints were born again, filled with the spirit of God. Now, Solomon, he was a kingly shepherd. He fed the people. He fed the truth, didn't he? We have the Spirit of God breathing out the Word. And uh, we have all the Proverbs here that people benefited from. And in that sense, he is Christ-like. Ecclesiastes 12.10, I read from Ecclesiastes 12, it says, The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. That which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given by one shepherd. Christ, by his Spirit, was speaking through Solomon. Isn't that wonderful? So the wisdom that Solomon had in all the Proverbs ultimately are through the one shepherd, Jesus Christ. So, again, I said, we have the administration, verses 2 to 6. We have their notice. There are priests, there are scribes, there's the recorder. There is the one over the host. There is some continuation here. Some of the men in David's cabinet, as it were, and these men serve Solomon. He was essentially of the same godly mind as his father, David. So he obviously agreed with David's condemnation, as I said, of Joab and Shimei, because they were all dealt with accordingly by Solomon. And then we have, if you notice, in the verse 7 to the verse 19, the 12 administrative districts of the princes over Israel. And what these princes did is they, they took the tribute for the support of the government They carried out a levy, and the levy now was for the good of the people of the land, wasn't it? To have a solid government, a reliable government, a well-organized government, to establish infrastructure, to provide a mighty military force, not for show, 
But it did ward off the enemies, no doubt. No nation dared threaten Israel in these days. We read of the 40,000 stores and chariots here, and the many horsemen. It was a mighty force. And the people gave. And uh, later, we know sadly, there was a levy here, and the people gave. And we're told that they were actually happy, each one under his own vine tree and fig tree, all of Israel and Judah making merry. But you notice, just have a look there at, here in verse 20, in Judah and Israel were many, as the sand which is by the sea in multitude. Notice 1 Kings 4.20, eating and drinking and making merry. It's a picture, isn't it, of the nation, the people had plenty. Although there was a tribute to the king and to provide for this government, there was ample provision for the people, wasn't there? It wasn't uh, tyranny. There was ample provision. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines, unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days. And Judah, verse 25, and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Bathsheba. That is figurative of saying, all across Israel, there was no want. Families were well provided for. Solomon had 40,000 stores, horses. All of this still provided, and yet the people didn't go without abundant provision. So while Solomon was provided for, the people still lacked nothing. They were Notice verse 25. Eating and drinking, every man dwelt in safely under his vine and fig tree from Dan even to Bathsheba. Well, this phrase, do you notice that little phrase there, verse 25, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, this was figurative and would become figurative of the Savior to come. Let me just show you from Scripture. If you turn to Zechariah chapter 3, you notice it's figurative of Christ coming into the world. We find this phrase used, pointing to Christ, the king who would come. Of course, we know that this is what Zechariah, this is many, many years later. Toward the close of the Old Testament, Zechariah 3, 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now we all should know who the branch is. The branch is Christ, the one from the stem of Jesse. For behold, the stone is also the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day, speaking of Calvary when Christ would bear the sin of his people. Now notice, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So it was, became figurative of prosperity and blessing. And blessing would come by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you turn to the book of Micah, 
chapter 4. And then again, this is speaking of Christ, who the nations would come to. And not just here speaking of Israel sitting under their vine and their fig tree, but here Micah 4 verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So this is the picture of many nations from among the every kindred, tribe, and tongue and nation of this world, and to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion of the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among many people. This is referring to Christ, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords with unto plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn any more. But notice, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. It's a picture of happiness under Christ and prosperity. So just as Solomon, I suppose you think here of Solomon, how Israel was the desire, was the envy of the nations around. I mean, surely it was. Look at the people of Israel, the world is saying. Look at them, this prosperity. They've got a great king. Nobody will attack them. Every man is happy in that land. Every man is sitting under his victory. So it is for the Christian. Oh, we may not have much. We may not have a fig tree. We may not have a great vineyard. But we have the Lord. The Christian has contentment. I sat down under the shadow of his tree. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. Song of Solomon. If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, are we not content? You see, when the world sees a Christian, They ought to see somebody who is content and happy. Paul said, I've learnt in whatsoever state I am. Didn't he say to be content? Why? Because he had the Lord. And if we have the Lord, we have everything. You see, Solomon is just a foreshadowing of Christ's kingdom. In fact, if you turn to the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, One of the titles or names of Christ is the desire of all nations. And you can just imagine as you go on the scene here in 1 Kings 4, how the nations desired when they looked at Solomon's kingdom and the people, how they must have marveled and thought how wonderful it must have been. Haggai 2.7, And I will shake the nations, notice, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Christ is styled with that title, the desire of all nations. He would come into this world, friends. And you see, under Christ, we have something far more than possessions. We have him, who is the greatest possession, who is wisdom, 
who is life, who comes to give us real life. When we're born again, he puts us in a new life, in a new way. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Well, Solomon put a yoke there. The people were happy. But you know what? They weren't really content because when his son took over, Rehoboam, guess what the people did? They rose up. They had great provision. They rose up against Solomon. Solomon's debt, we're not going to pay any more taxes, we're not going to pay any more tribute, and so on. If you turn to 1 Kings 12, I'll show you this very briefly. Now while you see, keep this in mind, in 1 Kings 4, there's merriness, there's happiness, but at the same time there's a very strange void in the life of people. And this ought to teach us a lesson that wealth, prosperity, that does not make you happy. That, that's not a life. It doesn't make a life. And you see that here with the people. 1 Kings 12, 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. That's the son of Solomon. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it. He was the military commander, for he was yet fled from the presence of King Solomon. Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter and we will serve thee. And of course, we know the story. You just read on. Rehoboam says, no, if you think my father was hard, wait till you see what's coming. And what happens? The kingdom split. But there should never have been a discontentment in the people. Should there? There should never. We read that they were happy, they were merry. It just goes to show, friends, you know, enough is never enough for people. This is why Solomon wrote, the eye is never satisfied. The ear is never filled. He saw it in the people. It's true today. Even if this country was to be very wealthy, people wouldn't be happy. If you're lost today, more money is not going to make you happy. Only the king only Jesus Christ. Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therefore be therewith content. Now I would ask you that. I'm not asking if you've got what your bank balance is. I'm not interested in it, but I want to know, are you content? That's the point, isn't it? Paul was in the prison, about to face his executed. He said, I've learned to be content. Why? Because he knew this life was passing. And Paul began to understand and to learn of the one who truly is wisdom. 
And to, to know that Christ is life and to pass through this life means a better life. It means glory. To be absent from the body he knew meant to be present with the Lord. You know, we have to part with our goods. We, we read it, didn't we, there in Ecclesiastes 2. One of Solomon's great vexations was, I'm going to have to leave all my wealth to this foolish son of mine, Rehoboam, who's going to blow it all. I think it just shows the discontented state of natural man's heart. And that was it here, wasn't it? Abundance, friends, is never enough for man. The eye is never satisfied, the ear is never filled. The key to life is to know Christ. Nothing wrong with things, but never let things have you. You can have things, but never let things have your heart. God must have the heart. If he's got the heart, you'll have a real life. You'll have real joy. Now, it could have also been Solomon's inconsistency in his life. As they were paying tribute and as the nation was blessed, they were seeing this man. Well, he provoked the people because of his many wives. He's telling us in the Proverbs, serve God. But he takes on these other women, and we're told in 1 Kings 11 that he served other gods. But let me say this, friends. I said we compare and we contrast Christ's kingdom. That could never be said of Christ. Is there anything in Christ that would provoke us against him? Nothing. There's nothing in the life, not a stain, not a spot in Christ that would ever provoke us from not serving him, from giving him his due. There's nothing. What did he say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Think of it. The very one who created the heavens and the earth and came and lived a relatively obscure life for 30 years, and then three years of public ministry, only to suffer and to die upon a cross. The one that created the cosmos, and then who would die for the sins of his people, says, come unto me. The one who was humble, who was lowly. We are never... Dismayed at him, are we? We're never ashamed of him. We, we are never provoked to dishonor Christ. You see, under Christ, men have a contentedness because they look to him and they see there is no flaw in that man, the God-man. But that could never be said of Solomon, could it? Could never be said of any of us. Not one of us. I'm sure I provoke others, as I'm sure you provoke others too. But that could never be said of Christ. Now notice Solomon's wisdom and the effects, verse 29 and following. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. 
and Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. The, the Egyptians were known for their science and their medicinal advancements, their knowledge about many things. But Solomon, we're told, was wiser because God gave him the, the, the wisdom. That's what we're told here. God gave him wisdom. And you see, he has a, an encouragement. If God calls us to a task, my friends, to serve him somewhere in the church, he will give wisdom and gifts to fit you for that service. What an encouragement that is. Solomon said, I am but a child. And yet, God, in his gracious provision, gave him all that he needed. What an encouragement for us. If we would just humble ourselves and say, Lord, I'm not sufficient. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Paul, before, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees, remember. From the tribe of Benjamin, a man of great learning. He said, whatever I knew, I have to consider, but lost now. For the sake of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's all scubala. It's all done. He, Paul had to go and relearn. And that's how it is for the Christian. He has to be humbled. But God exalts those who humble themselves. And look at the wisdom Solomon was given. Great wisdom. He excelled all others. Wiser than all men, than Ethan the Azraite. Well, we know who he is. He is the one who inspired or was given the words to write Psalm 89. Wiser than all, the sons of Mahal, Heman, Kalkol, Dada, the sons of Mahal. His fame, Solomon, stretched across the known world then. No greater wisdom. And it says here, and largeness of hearts. This does not refer to his generosity. The Hebrew word here refers to the, the, to, to, the, to the breadth of his wisdom, not the generosity of his heart. That's not the Hebrew word. In other words, God gave him wisdom to, uh, or proportionate to, governing the people that were as vast as the sands of the seashore. God gave him that breadth. And, and it was an applied wisdom. It was not just bare facts and knowledge, but he could apply it. We've already saw in the case of the two harlots that came before him, one saying, oh, this is my son, the other one saying, well, Solomon in no time made easy work of the case, didn't he? He exposed who the real mother was. The real mother didn't want the, 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 the baby to be cut in half, so she was prepared to have the to give up the baby. Such wisdom. It exceeded the wisdom of those of much older years than he. And it was a vast application. Look at verse 32. And he spake 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. And he spake of trees and of the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of the fowl and the creeping things. Think of some of the Proverbs. He says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. A lazy man. Go and look to an ant. The ant is busy. He doesn't stop working. 
You work in life. You work hard, the Lord will honor it. There's so many lessons, practical, out of nature, he drew. He watched, he observed. He speaks even of the conies who are a feeble folk. He says even they dwell in the rocks. A coney is from the Hyrax family. It's like a rabbit-like creature. He observed nature. And he's teaching us from the things that God has made. He says, look around, see, see God is a God of purpose. God has made these intelligent creatures. And sometimes, as human beings, we're foolish. And we can learn from the created order around us. And then, fifthly, it was sought after. Notice, and there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which heard of his wisdom. And one particular example we know the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba. In First Kings 10, you may wish to turn a few pages there. And When the Queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table, verse 4, and now verse 5, and the meat of his table and sitting of his servants and the attendants of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord. We read, there was no more spirit in her. She was overwhelmed by everything. Everything was done in an honorable and a right way. There was wisdom in everything that he did. He wasn't a careless, sloppy king. He was a man who was busy. You think of his first few steps in chapter 2, how he dealt swiftly with those enemies. Solomon was no layabout, was he? And we as Christians are not to be layabouts. We are to be busy, industrious people. Work came before the fall. Work is not a curse, but work's a blessing, isn't it? To labor, to work. Well, we read, and she said to the king, verse 6 of First Kings 10, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and thy wisdom, howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and my eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me, thy wisdom and thy prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever and so on. So his wisdom was broad, it was extensive and it was sought for. But how much more Christ? You know, think of it. The wisdom... Solomon had was from Christ. But do we not seek the wisdom of Christ? And where do we seek it? We seek it in his word. And when somebody sees a changed life, and they're quickened and they say, well, where did you get this wisdom from? You say, from Christ, from the word of God. He is wisdom. What does the Apostle Paul tells us? Christ is become for us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, that if any man glory, let him Glory in the Lord. Well, 
Solomon was given great wisdom. It was extensive. He says in uh, Proverbs 30, verse 26, of course, this is Christ speaking through Solomon. The conies, that's the hyrax, are but a feeble folk, yet make their houses in the rocks. Well, that's us. (laughs) In a sense, we're feeble. But we hide in the rock, the rock of ages, Christ. The locusts have no king, he says, yet they go forth of all of them by bands. You know, they have a knowledge of where to go to get food. And friends, we have a knowledge to know where to get food, don't we? We have an instinct. Man shall not live by bread alone. We read here of Solomon and the great provision of bread. Well, the bread was to his servants, but Christ, who is the bread of life, gives to all of his subject members. He said, I am the bread of life. Man that comes to him will never hunger, will never thirst, will never want. Solomon gave great provisions, but ultimately it was the Lord. Well, it's an encouragement as we look at Solomon, who lacked wisdom, and yet the Lord says to us, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. problem is we, we don't often ask, do we? We don't ask. Well, if we ask, we ask amiss. Now, some contrasts and closing application this morning. Solomon's reign, we have to say, was imperfect though his reign was glorious. It was imperfect, though it was glorious. It had flaws. And in some measure, we have to say Solomon provoked the people of his day because of his own infractions, because of his own living. But that could never be said of our Lord, can it? It can never be said of the King, the Lord Jesus. We'll never be disappointed in Christ. His demands were high, but the people were happy. But what about the Lord? The Lord's demands are high on us. It's a high calling, isn't it? But we're happy if we are the Lord's. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever regretted witnessing to somebody? Have you ever regretted doing something for the Lord? Have you ever regretted sticking your neck out for God? Look at what Paul has to say concerning the servants there in Romans 15. Think of Aquila and Priscilla, whose necks really basically is what he's saying they put out, how they served the Lord. No regrets there. We have no regrets in serving the Lord and giving ourselves. You see, our rebelling against Christ is always unprovoked, isn't it? The rebelling against Solomon in some ways, though it was wrong, was provoked in some instances by himself, but it could never be said of Christ. Never. It could be said of Rehoboam and all the other kings that followed, 
The Christ will never err, friends. Let me say this, he's king now, and he always will be king. Always. Forever he is king. He is priest forever. After the order, as we sang this morning of Melchizedek, a, a priest and a king, a priest who gave himself for his people, a king who rules for them and rules in our hearts. And let me say this, his dealings with us are always on the basis of mercy and truth. There's never justification for rebelling against Christ, is there? Who is too wise to err and too good to be unkind? We said about Solomon's bread, how he provided, verse 22. Great number, but it was for those at his table. But friends, one day we shall all be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Christ will be our meat. Christ will be our food. Christ will be our delight. Christ will be our everything. Solomon was made wise to the people, but Christ is made wise finally for us. 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And finally, we thought of how Solomon and Israel was the desire of all nations. But you know, When the Lord saves a people, he brings all kinds of people to himself from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And he actually becomes our desire. Our desire is for him, to honor him, to glorify him in this life. Psalm 72, which we're going to close with, it is a psalm for Solomon, and it says this in the verse 12. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy. He shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. Why? Because when we die, we go to be with him. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And he shall live, and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth, and so on. And it says, in his name shall endure forever. That is to remind Solomon that a greater would come. And we thank the Lord that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And blessed be his name forever. What a savior we have. In Jesus Christ, a greater than Solomon, who came into this world. Do you know him? If you know him, let me say this. People would desire what you have. Paul tells us, to one we are the savor of death unto death, to the other the savor of life unto life. 2 Corinthians 2.16 God gave his son.
Should we not 